and welcome to another episode of The Gaming Moguls, the only episode where we're willing to turn the heat off on a 25 below zero night to make sure that you have the best quality audio. I'm your host tonight, Mark Teske, along with my millennial co-host, Mr. Jake Klopfenstein. Jake, staying warm? Barely. Just barely, Mark. This is insane. I know. It's absolutely ridiculous. Well, my boss also is flying in tomorrow, and she's from Atlanta, and I think she's going to freeze to death. It's like supposed to be negative 50 with wind chill and stuff. It's going to be <laughs> ridiculous. For those of you that are not here in the uh, bold north of Minnesota, we're having some really historic colds right now. So bad that they've canceled all the schools and a lot of businesses are closing and so forth. We're looking at, you know, minus 50 plus wind chills and so forth. It's that point where Fahrenheit and Celsius crossover. That's when you know it's cold. A dark land. Yeah. And the upside of that one, though, is with my kids off, that means I'm going to get to do a whole bunch of board gaming with my little people this week. That's going to be awesome. Sweet. We'll talk about it next week. Looking forward to it. Why don't we talk about some games, Mark? So, yeah, we got to play some great stuff this week. One of the things I was excited about getting out and playing is a game that's part of one of my most epic wild goose chases that I've ever been on when traveling. I went to game stores all over Japan trying to find a copy of this game, only to have them in broken English tell me that, nope, sold out, sold out. I went to Yellow Submarine, I went to Roll and Roll, I went to every Japanese game store I could find and came up dry every time. Smash cut to about two weeks ago, suddenly I see Tokyo Highway on the shelf every place here in North America. So... Yay. I had to pick up a copy right away. I mean, after wandering Tokyo, that'd be stupid not to buy a right. copy of it. And I was super happy that we finally got to pull that out and play that the other night. Jake, how did it go for you? Not well. I was a little bit Godzilla-like. My uh, hands are not super dexterous, so we learned. And the first time that we played, I absolutely messed it up and made it nearly unplayable. And then towards the end, the second time we played, I thought I was winning and then I was slightly off. And guess what? I ruined the entire thing. So the challenge there is that if you knock anything over, you're responsible for putting it back. Unlike games like Jenga, where if everything falls over, it's just done. This one, you actually have to recover and put everything back, which can be a big challenge. And by the way, every piece of somebody else's you knock off, you have to give one of your pieces to them. Well, Jake had nearly won, was putting the last piece on only to realize that he had a popsicle stick sticking, oh, I'll be charitable, three sixteenths of an inch off the end of a pillar. Yeah, barely. And I think if you're not a complete rules lawyer on this game, you're not doing it right. So we called you and we called you on it and you had to fix it. And that resulted in tragedy. Yeah, but it was fun. It was kind of an activity more than a game. And I kept on trying to like finagle the rules to make it be a little bit more gamey. But then I realized that's not the point of this. We were hooting and hollering as a group of four, having the best time at the game store, trying really hard to do this. Why would we make it anything more than that? Right. Yeah, I'm pretty sure all the others playing crunchy Euro games in our vicinity were not super happy with us. But fortunately, we saved it till very late in the evening. So I don't think we totally bothered anybody else. Correct. I also got a chance to play Sherlock Holmes, the consulting detective this week with my lovely fiance, Anna. This is a game that was originally designed by Raymond Edwards and Suzanne Goldberg and Gary Grady back in 1981. It's actually a fairly old game. Yeah, I had absolutely no idea that game was that old. Yeah, it's been in print kind of on and off for the whole time, but it's really neat. And so in this game, what you're doing is you're the like Baker Street boys and you're helping out Sherlock Holmes solve some murders. So every single case that you have, You're going to have a big pamphlet that's going to give the exposition to start the mission. And then you're also going to have a newspaper that kind of gives the daily rundown of what's going on. And certain things in the newspaper will give you clues to figure out what you're supposed to do. But the whole game, what you're going to do is you're going to follow leads 
And a certain lead is corresponding to a location in your little pamphlet that you can go to to determine what they're doing. Like, so let's say, for example, you, there was a murder and you could go to the murder site and see what's happening there. And then there'll be a little paragraph where you read and you'll learn some stuff and you'll do some cross-referencing. But it's a whole very conversational, very exploratory storytelling experience. But we had a really, really, really fun time with it. And I think there's like 12 more cases to solve in the book. And it was really hard. We had a really tough time doing it. I think we visited 12 or 20 leads to solve ours <laughs> somewhere in that neighborhood. And uh, Sherlock Holmes did it in four. We figured out everything and we were pretty right. We were right-ish. And uh, Sherlock Holmes made us feel like fools. Well, you know, just the fact that it has the staying power to still be relevant, um, you know, 30 years later or whatever that is, it says a lot for the game for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and once I'm done with this, I'll happily give it your way and you can try it out a little bit and play with your family. It was really fun. It was fun to chat. Everyone kind of took notes. The one thing I will say is the typeface choice on this is the worst. All of the H's and B's look the exact same. The bottom half of the little H curves in and it's so hard to read. That coupled with the fact that they're speaking in very conversational, we'll say, British English made it very, very hard to read. So sometimes we'd be halfway through the sentence and have to back up and be like, what the heck did we just read? Oh, so Jake, what is one of my biggest pet peeves in gaming design? Typeface choice. So user interface design is a thing. And a big thing when you're designing a user interface or conveying information is to have it readable. There is a time for decoration and there is a time for legibility. And please don't confuse the two of those things, game designers. Like I'm looking at one of the games that I love and it drives me crazy is the typeface choice in Indonesia. It's fine if you want to use an, a really ugly font, Scriptina, for the title choice. But don't put the place names in that font. Come on, people. So that's one that makes me nuts. And most 18xx games have decided to make like the stock market table out of a script font. I, I get Why? it's old fashioned looking, but that's a bad choice. Right. Absolutely ridiculous. Yeah, I, I agree. Or they'll place it in the middle of the block, not actually. So when you actually place your token there, it covers up the value. Smart. For sure. On a game that is not poorly designed and looks absolutely beautiful and has a very recognizable typeface, we also gave another run at Architects of the West Kingdom by Shem Phillips and S.J. McDonald. Jake, you've played this one a few more than I have. What are you thinking about it? I like it. It's uh, So we're big fans of Raiders of the North Sea, which is another worker placement style game from the same designer, Shem Phillips, that also comes with a different kind of theme. You're Vikings versus this one. You're building up a medieval style town. Just played that this morning. Absolutely. It's a wonderful game. I don't really know how much I'm liking Architects of the West Kingdom versus Raiders of the North Sea. I'm a huge fan of Raiders of the North Sea, and I originally was very upset on my first play of Architects of the West Kingdom because I didn't back Architects of the West Kingdom. And I was really kicking myself because I thought it'd be cool. But the more and more I've played it, it seems I need to play it more, but it seems like certain strategies are a little bit more profitable than others in terms of actually winning the games. And the variable setup kind of forces you down certain roads that are just not as good as the others. Um, I don't know if it takes certain card draws or something along those lines. Not definitive yet, but we'll see. What did you think of it, Mark? One of the challenges with that one, it's both the blessing and the curse, is that there's the ability to play either symmetric powers or asymmetric powers on it. And they have a different setup. Symmetrically, you all start with the same starting things, and you end up battling for a lot of the same hotspots. The idea behind the asymmetric thing is that hopefully you would try to go for different things and it would spread you out across the board a little bit more. Seems like a great idea, but plainly, 
those are not very well balanced because I took one of the characters that started out disreputable and got a discount for doing very evil things, which at the end of the game gives you some penalty points for still being evil. But there's a timing factor in doing the evil things and then stopping being evil and starting to make positive points. Seems great. I decided to roll with it and really do that thing that my faction gave me the power to do. And I got absolutely hammered for doing it. <laughs> it yeah. was really ugly. Oh, well, I my played God, the I same. I played bad. the same guy that you did my first play, and it was the same exact thing. I still think we need more plays before we can 100% qualify this one as. Oh, yeah. Yeah, unbalanced. I'm definitely down for playing it again. But I think I've played it four or five times. It seems as if certain strategies are a little bit higher valued than others. Right. Well, and you think about uh, Raiders of the North Sea absolutely starts out in a symmetric formation. You're all in the same village and all going for the same places. I guess your hand of cards is different, so your your crew is going to be a little different. But yeah, I'm curious to see how it plays out. I haven't cracked the code on this game yet. I've played it twice and I've done miserably both times. So maybe I'm just bad at it. But <laughs> maybe there's that. <laughs> we'll see. I did enjoy it. I, I predict, especially now that he's got a shiny new Mark Teske 3D printed insert for it. I think Uncle Kirk will be bringing that one a lot, just forecasting. And hopefully he will. I like it a lot. I'll play it again. I just I, I need to I need to understand it a little bit more before I really make up my mind on it. So why don't we do something we rarely ever do, Mark? Why don't we tell about some news? So we are not a news podcast, and I don't even know that I'm going to call this a news segment. I'm just going to call this cool stuff I saw that I'm super geeked out about. So first one that I saw off of Sashi and Sashi's Instagram feed. So I I think news actually has to be researched and have some quantity (laughs) behind it. This is definitely not research. This is just stuff I saw that we saw that we were like, this is fantastic. Sashi and Sashi's Instagram page, that's a tongue twister built right into itself, had a picture of Metro X, which, as you remember, if you listen to our end of year wrap up episode, was one of our favorite games of last year. It's a roll and write about making routes in the Tokyo Metro system and Osaka. And it's so good, man. That's a great game. They flashed a picture up of the Metro Extension. Look expansion. at that pun, that pun right oh, there. Metro Extension. I know where they have maps of Sendai, Hakata, and Nagoya. I don't know anything about this one, but there is a 1,000% chance I'm going to be seeking that out and have a sneaking sad suspicion that I may not be able to get my hands physically on it until like Gen Con. But, oh, I got to get that. Maybe they'll upload it to BGG and we can print off a couple of pages and uh, at least play it before we actually get our real copy of it. That is extremely high on my gotta have it list. Also on my extremely high gotta have it list is something that was came out of nowhere with the latest update of the Ganshun Clever iPhone app. They referenced a new app called Doppelt So Clever, which is like even more clever, double as double as clever. Sorry, not German. It is another spin on the Ganshun Clever roll and write game, which has different dice like it has gray and pink and kind of acid green and completely different ways that the dice react. And there's some pretty funky ones in there, like the yellow section, you actually have to go through and double check things. Like the first time you put a dice there, you circle it. And when you circle and complete columns and rows, it gives you special powers, but you don't score till you hit them again. You go back through and put an X over the top of them. Oh, neat. And you only get to count towards scoring the ones with Xs. Really cool. There's another one where the row gets constantly smaller and there's no resets. So the blue plus the white thing gets smaller. Everyone has to be smaller or equal to there. So you want your first one to be a 12, obviously, and then work your way down from there. There, the gray zone is bizarre. Gray is a wild, as is white. 
And it will fill in, like if you take one that's farther up the line, like let's say you take a five and you want to kick the rest of them out, you actually get to score that five and all the ones underneath it. Oh. So it gives you a new power-up that you can actually get dice back out of the cup. So you try to combo that where you put dice in there and then get them right back so that you can roll them again. Neat. Yeah, just a neat little twist on it. And what's cool about it is, is there is actually a copy of the score sheet on Board Game Geek that has been adapted to the original Ganshun Clever dice colors. Oh, wow. So we can play it real quick. Just print off a couple of copies of that. We will play it this Wednesday. Wonderful. That's awesome. So you actually did for sure research this, which goes against our whole news slash podcast (laughs) editorial stance. And I'm going to do a return to form with the next one, Mark. Right on. Okay. Make me proud. There's a picture on Board Game Geek of a German press release of Castles of Burgundy Deluxe Edition. Remember how we said we don't read German? That's it. I tried to translate the page. It didn't read real easy. Don't really know when it's coming out. Don't know what it's going to do. It's a thing, I guess. Jake, why is this important to you? Because I love Castles of Burgundy, but it's my biggest pet peeve the way it looks games. So... I can take not as beautiful and artistic games. I mean, I love the way DNXX games look. I despise the way Castles of Burgundy look. It's a sea of tan that does not have any discerning different colors to it. It's ugly as all sin, and I would do anything to have a better designed version of this game. I think I would spend up to about $120 getting a deluxified edition of Castles of Burgundy easily. Jake, you remember back in grade school when you'd have a random box of half-broken color crayons? Yep. And like the black one would be gone and the yellow ones would be gone and the red ones would be gone and the box would be just a giant box of brown. That's it. I think that's exactly how the original of Castle Burgundy was designed. And then Castle Burgundy, the board isn't even laid out well. For some weird reason, they tried to make it. They they did the thing where all Euro games where they have the little track around the outside to get to certain points, right? That's how you track your points. You move your little guy, you have a little token that you move up for some weird reason instead of just having the track go around and have it be 90 when you go all the way around they zigzagged a bunch at the end and uh made it so it went up to 100 it's absolutely ridiculous it just drives me up the wall (laughs) it's like they made it in the afternoon when they had to print it off the next day it's just god it's ugly i hate it so much yeah i'm pretty sure that's one that i would invest in as well because that's such a great game and you know i guess the upside is the other one's so cheap everybody should own a copy if you're listening out there and you don't own castles of burgundy that's the best 25 dollars you're ever going to spend on gaming easily if you can get over how it looks lest we not travel too far into what might be considered reviews of some of these things jake we probably need to have a conversation with all of our listeners about this topic don't you agree i absolutely agree when mark and i went out to start this podcast We both have jobs that have us doing things that don't require our full effort the whole time. So we would just chat on the phone and talk about game stuff. So we said, why why don't we just put a recorder to this and make it a podcast? We are not really reviewers. We don't play games frequently enough, nor are we really interested in the idea of designing a game. We just are really gamers at the end of the day, and we just want to play games. I don't really want to evaluate why games are good or why games aren't good. I'm just going to say specific things on which we like it. So most of our impressions on games are exactly that, just first impressions. Your results may vary. I think that's probably a good way to take it home. Yeah, the way I look at it is putting it in using a car metaphor. It's as if uh, you owned a uh, 2012 Toyota 4Runner, and I wanted to go buy a 2012 Toyota 4Runner. Also, I don't need you to tell me what the gas mileage is and what the features are and what options it comes in and where it's available. I want to know, like, how does it handle? Does it break down a lot? 
How's it corner? Does the heater work well in the winter? Those sort of first impression, high level things that I would ask a friend who owned the same car as I was interested in getting. That's what we're doing with board games. It's the, what'd you think of that game you tried last week? Well, you know, I found it kind of difficult to learn and I was having a real hard time tracking that stuff. And I probably need to play it a couple more times, but here are the things that I saw on first glance. So that's going to be a lot of the content that we saw. And by the way, that's valid because there are an awful lot of gamers out there that don't play games more than a few times. Name a game, there's going to be somebody that played that a thousand times and can tell us exactly what the right move to make is in a certain case. That isn't us, and it'll never be us. But there's a lot of people out there that are interested in trying something and they want to know a little bit about whether they should bother or not. Right. And if you want to do a review, there's better reviewers out there who have it down formulaically and actually can be better critique games than probably we can. So. We're just chatting. Yep. And you are a guest in our little chats. Absolutely. Finally, before we get into the meat of this uh, conversation this evening, T-shirts. I have a connection to make T-shirts locally and Mark and I were talking and we want to have some. So we thought we'd put out some feelers and see if any of the listeners would be interested in them. I really have no other information on pricing or sizing or what it's actually going to look like. But if you'd be interested in them, please email me. I just kind of want to know if you'd be interested just to kind of get a head tally. There's also been some of our family members who are interested as well. So it's something we're going to make and might as well extend it to the listeners as well. And it's one of those things that the more you do in that kind of thing, the cheaper it becomes for everybody and we can do a better product. And if we're going to go through the effort of making stuff for us, God dang, we'd sure like it if we had some more people join us for the fun. Absolutely. So email me, jake at gamingmoguls.com. Right on. So you heard it here first. Gaming Moguls merch en route. There you go. Incoming. Break, 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 break. Okay, so the main topic we want to talk about tonight is the art of traveling with games. And this is something that is frequently discussed on communities like Reddit or on different Slack channels or on board game geek posts. If you Google out traveling games or good games to travel with or solutions for carrying games, you will find dozens of pages out there. So we thought that would be an excellent topic to deep dive on because this is something both of us have put some thought into and actually care something about. That makes it a great topic for discussion on that one. So why are some of the reasons that we care about this one and we've spent time on this one? Personally speaking, the Teske family loves to travel. We have personally made the decision that travel is going to be a big part of our life and that while our kids are at an age that it's really easy for them to travel, we're going to try to expose them to as much of the world as possible. And as a family that likes to game, we quickly decided to figure out how to crossbreed those two love interests of ours so we could do them at the same time. Originally started with me chucking a bunch of just random loose games into my suitcase or into my backpack. Mm -hmm. And as you'd expect, the boxes would fly open and I'd end up with a backpack full of random cards and the boxes would get beaten to crap. And that just didn't work that great. Therefore, what we I did is I looked into how can I effectively travel with games? Also, not even quite that dramatically, Jake, you have different reasons for liking doing this. Well, I live in a very small apartment. The table that I have, there's a community table in like the first floor of my apartment building that you can rent out or just play games in. So I'll occasionally do it there. But the majority of my games are played remotely. Every Wednesday we play at a Fantasy Flight game store, and that accounts for 39% of my games that I played last year. That's excluding games I played at your house, Mark, games I played at my cabin. That's excluding games I played at my family's place, at Anna's family's place. I rarely actually play games at my house. 
So I'm always schlepping games around and it's something that I've actually considered, let's say with like poker chips, I've went way out of the way to get mini poker chips. So I don't have to lug around really heavy poker chips from my car to the game store all the time. And on top of that, Jake and I are some of the primary game bringers in our group. We're often the people that are bringing and running games. So we're frequently in a position where we're schlepping games all over the place. Yep, absolutely. So it was worth a thought instead of lugging around the Big old, what, what, what are those, Sterilite carrying tubs? Yeah, the tubs or the Ikea bags you see people with, or even the Cajon bags. Right. So why don't we start with that? What bags have you actually used? We've both owned Cajon bags. Sure. Why don't we start with that one? Cajon bags is the easiest way to jump into this one. They're typically $25 to $30 on Amazon. That's spelled C-A-J-O-N. Uh, Cajon is a wooden box drum that you see people sitting on and whacking at to make a beat. It's a hand drumming tool, I guess you'd call it. As it turns out, a cajon is the exact size of a game box. So yeah, the square ticket it, to ride sized box. Yeah, exactly. It's exactly that size, like as if that case was made for that size box. So you can stack eight of them in there, something Six like that, eight. and it fits yeah. it like a glove. We both started there. The problem is cajones weigh 10 pounds, mm-hmm. maybe less, eight pounds. Uh, how much do eight board games weigh? It's a lot more than that, probably 30. <laughs> you know, the clock starts ticking on that cajon bag almost from day one. These tears start developing pretty quickly. They aren't made to take that kind of abuse. Right, no. And so I've had two of them, and one of them I did have to throw away because it just got too beat up with the zipper and everything. And then the other one, the strap was broken from day one. So I can only carry it from the top handle, which is only stitched on in two places. It doesn't actually go around to bear any load. It's just a ticking time bomb. I know it's going to explode sometime. So what are some other things that you use, Mark, to carry around games besides the cajon bag? My pride and joy right now is a year or so ago, I bucked up and backed the ultimate board game backpack from Geek On. And this thing is a work of art. It's absolutely amazing. It has about the same carrying capacity as the Cajon, but it's way better built. Lots of mesh pockets, lots of side pockets, expandable, collapsible, zippable, super comfortable on your back. It actually has like nice straps and pads and stuff like that. So if you wanted to carry around this for a longer period of time or had a walk from a car or something like that, boy, it's way better than dangling the Cajon bag out there. And I think it's going to take some abuse. Now, I have heard some pushback on these from people that are trying to carry these things at conventions and being a pain to everybody around them. So maybe not for that usage, but be a nice person still. Yeah. Be be courteous yes, of space. Don't be a jerk. Yeah. Because this thing does stick off your back a solid 18 inches. So I can see in a crowd where that would be pretty unfriendly. Right. But it's it's incredibly nice. I'm very envious, but it is a little expensive last time I checked, right? You know, it wasn't so bad when I backed it. When I first backed it, including a lot of other stuff, like I think the case itself was $159 or something like that. And it came with some extras so that my pledge was a little higher than that when I got the extras in there. And now they're north of $200. That seems insane for a game backpack, I admit. But I am a professional photographer. In my world, cases cost over $200 for a modest case. Right. Good cases are expensive and you get what you pay for. So I learned early in my photography career that buying a cheap case was a complete waste of money. So I got a thing about getting nice cases. Absolutely. And I, I will say it, it looks just like a hiking backpack or something along those lines with really nice mesh and everything. It's really cool. I would get one, but I actually have a couple of solutions now that I'm really happy with. So I have two bags that I kind of oscillate. These are two bags that I kind of oscillate between. So the first one is my I don't need to bring that many games to a game night thing. Let's say I'm just going to a buddy's house or 
if we have a game that we know we're playing on a Wednesday, but I want to bring some other things for options. I have a small bag that's by Game Hall. It's called the Game Night. And I think it holds about two, like three to four full sized boxes and maybe two to three small boxes or two to three regular sized boxes with a whole bunch of small box games. It has a couple of pouches on the outside, one for a water bottle and then the other one for like random zipper pocket stuff. But I got it on Amazon. It's $30 plus shipping. And it kind of is a one strap kind of what's that called, Mark? Uh, well, briefcase. It's like, a, it's like a glorified duffel bag. Exactly. A glorified duffel bag. And that works out really well. It only has one strap, but it's really well made and it's smaller. So I can just bring less games because I don't always need the huge variety. And a lot of these games, they get protected better if you bring a full bag. The other one that I have, if I do want to bring six to eight games, I call it the Cajon Bag 1.5, but it's by Board Game Tables. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> it's uh, well, yeah, well. it's uh, by Board Game Tables and it's $34, but it's no shipping. Just go to Board Game Tables and just search for bag on their little website. You can find it there. And it's really nice. So it's just every issue that we had with the Cajon Bag being not designed to carry stuff that's 30, 40 pounds. This has been fixed. The straps are incredibly nice. They're not as nice as yours, but... The top holding strap is more solid. It's actually like stitched into the structural aspect of it. The zippers are better and it's better padded. And it says board game tables on com, So everybody knows that you're one of the cool kids who likes bringing board games everywhere. Yeah, that's definitely the case where somebody saw a cajon bag and went, oh, that's 90% of the way there. If we just improve this, this and this, we'd have it. And that's exactly what they did. Right. It's a great idea. And for what you pay for it, I mean, $25 for a cajon bag that's going to fall apart or $34 for one that's not, there's nothing. To right. And about. and last time I checked and I checked this morning, there was no shipping on it. And you have to pay shipping on the uh, cajon bags from Amazon because I don't think they're primable. Yeah. Ooh, didn't know. Yeah. That. I, mean, I, I hmm. There yeah, you go. Go for it. The final thing that I do bring to game night every night is my quiver game mat. We play on the the tables actually at Fantasy Flight Games. I think they're like Ikea industry tables. So they're white tables that are kind of shiny. And there's two of them that are put together that are smaller tables to make a kind of larger squarish shaped table. This does a couple of things. For one, there's a small little gap in some of the table combinations. So bits will fall through. And finally, there's no give on the table. So sometimes it's really annoying to pick up cards. So a while ago, a couple of people in our gaming group kickstarted the Quiver Game Mat Kickstarter, the first one, and they're really nice. So I ended up getting gifted one by another person in the game group who doesn't use theirs anymore because I come to game night more often than them. And it's really yeah, nice. And technically speaking, he, he gifted it to the group, which, man, thanks, Uncle Jeff. Yeah, thanks, Jeff. We like it. Thanks, Jeff. We appreciate it. <laughs> um, and so what it is, is it almost feels like kind of industrial carpet. But it has a little design yeah, on yeah, it. I would agree with that. And it just makes it so you can pick up the game better. And it's perfectly sized for the game tables at Fantasy Flight Games. I would say go find one. You can't of this original Kickstarter anymore. But there's some other ones that are just kind of like the neoprene mouse mat material that I've seen some people use. And you can buy online. And those work just as well as well. But that's the other thing I bring. And I put it in a $12 telescoping. Like I think it's an architect carry case. So those are my two things I schlep just to bring to game nights, either a bag and then that game mat. You just gave me an idea. What's that? Gaming moguls branded gaming mat for tables. There it is. Or you can just take off your T-shirts, buy eight T-shirts, sew them all together. (laughs) There you go. Problem solved. That'll work just as well. No, those are solutions are all great for when you are, I don't know, glamping, I guess you'd call it if you're going car camping. Um, But if you're going (laughs) if you're going lighter and you're going on a bigger journey. As much as I love my Geek on Ultimate Game Bag, 
I'm not bringing a backpack full of big box games with me to China. I'm not going to bring those to Italy. I'm not going to bring those anywhere outside of someplace I drive with my car. So what are your solutions then? And this is some place that I've made a point of deep diving a little more into. And how do I get the most gaming buck for the least amount of space? I don't care so much about weight because the idea is this case would be backpackable and that, you know, nobody's weighing backpacks yet on airplanes. That day may come. But for the moment, you can still, you know, (laughs) get on pretty much anything you want inside a backpack. And uh, again, as a traveling photographer, trust me, I push that to the ridiculous limits. I mean, I typically have lenses stuffed in coat pockets and (laughs) batteries stuffed inside my spare pair of shoes. Anyway, so. You come up with all kinds of tricks when you're way, way over the weight limit. But one of the things I've done is figuring out how to make a case, which I jokingly call the case of holding. It's a throwback to the old Dungeons and Dragons bag of holding, where you try to see how much junk you can fit inside a bag in an extra dimensional space. And I've done the travel game equivalent of that for our family traveling trips. There's a couple different ways you can do that. There's a couple popular ways that people have found to travel with those sort of things. And there's a ton of Board Game Geek lists about this one. And this topic comes up frequently on Reddit as well. How do I make a travel game case and what games do I include? We're going to talk a little bit about games that work well for traveling and how do we travel with them more than just going to our game night or more than just going to our cabin for the weekend. One popular way I'm going to talk about first before I get into my main solution to this one is speaking of Quiver and the Quiver game mat, I have one of the Quiver card cases that they made, which is this really lovely leather long card case. It was originally made for like the Magic the Gathering crowd, I suspect. And I actually bought one of those to keep my Magic the Gathering cube in it back in the days when I had one of those things that I would use to carry around and travel with my Magic the Gathering cube. And it's this lovely protective leather case that's out there little bit on the expensive side for a gaming case, but it's nice. What I'm using now is an awful lot more affordable and actually probably has better utility. Jake and I ended up both getting one of these things. Jake, I don't know that you use yours much anymore. There is something called the Caseling Card Game Case that I bought off Amazon. It was originally intended as a Cards Against Humanity card game traveling holder that holds up to 1,650 cards. With six movable dividers, and this thing costs you about $17, so extremely affordable. Now, first thing you do is you rip out and throw away all the dividers because it just takes up space that you could use for games. So this is something we and we both invested in, and I know I still use mine a lot, but Jake, you don't use yours as much, do you? Right. So the main reason I don't use this anymore is to really maximize the benefit of the case lane card game case. It's a 9 by 13 by 3 kind of lunch pail shaped molded plastic felt cloth thing. Yeah. That's that's kind of the best way to put it. And the best way to maximize the amount of games you could fit in there is by unboxing them and then leaving oh, you definitely it in the want case. Yeah. Right, right. That's the whole point. I sit three feet away from my board game shelf all day when I work from home. My board game shelf's in my office. I don't really want to look at the case link game case that often. And it's really irrational, but I just like to see all my games when I look at my shelf. I just like to know they're all there. It's it's easy for me to do that. And I don't have to do that. So I don't use it anymore. But if I were to go on like a European trip or head somewhere that I'm kind of limited on space through a flight, I'm definitely going to pack it up again. And yeah, bring it. I actually have a, my cake and eat it to answer to that one. I still have my boxes on the shelf empty, even though I keep them full time unboxed in my case link case. Well, I, I would do that, too. But then I'm just going to like 
I'm not going to remember. It's going to cause me a little bit of anxiety. But yeah, that's the well, way I to can do definitely it. see you bringing the empty box to a game night and pulling it out. Hey, we're going to play dice just, fishing and cracking it open and going, oh, yeah, crap. That's actually in my case. Whoops. case. Whoops. Right. What I do is when somebody pulls one of those games off, I'll stop and say, well, hold on. That's in a different place. Let me get that. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Good idea. But I think the best way to kind of give you the right way to convey to the, the listeners how this is going to work would be through a blog post. Absolutely. Yeah. I am going to create a blog post on gamingmoguls.com where I'm going to show the case and I'm going to show all that I fit in there. And it fits a shocking number of games. I've gotten as high as 19 or 20 games in there in the past, depending on which games I pick. Obviously, some games are bigger and take up more space, but you pick some small box games like No Thanks or something like that that are just a thin deck of cards or even better, if you combine games that you can use the same deck for multiple games, you can get a shocking number of games inside that case. Now, there's a downside to doing that. There's a hard downside. As it turns out, if you have a brick of cards, and when you have this thing stuffed full, it is a brick of cards, in a backpack, along with a case that has every cord that you might need on a trip, every audio cord and lightning cable and mini USB and USB-C and mini HDMI and blah, 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 blah. Security in the TSA does not like that. They do not. I don't know what it is. I think the dense cards are like a material that must go black or something. I, I don't know why, but they always... Whenever I have a deck of cards, wires makes them nervous. (laughs) They don't care for that. Put put an egg timer in there, too. Just I asked them about that. They said, yeah, (laughs) either one we can deal with just fine. But you see the two of them together and we got to take a look at that one. And I always get a little bit of an eye roll when I open that up and they see it's just jam packed with cards. So I have learned the hard way that I just pull the case out and roll it through the X-ray by itself. And that's the fastest way to get through TSA with that case. Do check out Mark's blog post because it's amazing how much you fit in there. And it works really well with the cajon bag, too. You can slide it right in or the cajon sized bag. You can just slide it right in there. You have like a to go thing. And it fits perfectly in the attic of the Geek On backpack. Oh, perfect. Yeah. And I would do it more. I just have so many small box games I love and are in constant rotation. I don't want to be beholden to 20 of them, for example, when like about half of my collection is small box games. Games aren't the only thing that you need to pack along with that one. You need some other accessories to it, like rules, for example. So what I have done is I've taken a spare felt bag that you can buy for dirt cheap. You can buy a dozen of them for $5 on Amazon or something like that. I take a felt bag and I just put all of the rule sheets in there and just lay it across the top and zip it in there so that I have the rules to all of these things. Now, the nice part about this case is my family has played most of these enough that I rarely have to re-reference the rules. They're all games that we just know how to play and can whip out quickly, but it's still nice to have them for a reference just in case. In the same bag, I also take any game that has a score sheet and I laminate the score sheet and put it in there. So Trick of the Rails, for example, I'll laminate the score sheet, slide it in there, use the front side for Trick of the Rails and use the back side for just any t- other game that I need to keep score on that I can write on. Right along with that, I'll keep a dry erase marker with a built-in eraser and another pencil or pen or something like that, because you can always use a pencil or pen when you're gaming. I think what I need to do here, Mark, is maybe commit to actually using the case of holding again, because it's such a good idea. And maybe I just have to remake another go at it. Yeah, and its utility was really hammered home to me last week when we got stuck playing Mag Blast. (laughs) I would have rather played anything in my case of holding over Mag Blast. That was such an unpleasant experience. Right. But yeah, keep an eye out for Mark's blog. Um, check it out on GameHimmels.com. You'll see it's amazing how much you can fit yep. in there. It's a, it's a cool topic. So rather than diving in and talking about all 20 games and full disclosure, 
This is actually go-to at this recording. We do have a version that went straight to the dustbin where we tried to review all 20 games in there, and it was too many. Too many. So we decided that a better way to approach this one was to talk about our favorites in that bunch, to make that we would rather talk at more depth about our favorite ones in that bunch than talking at a really high level about a whole bunch of games in there. Again, if you want to see all the games that are in there, GamingMoguls.com and check out the blog. Perfect. So, Mark, why don't you kick us off with your top five favorite travel game that may or may not be in your case of holding? And actually, I think all of these are or have been or will be in my case of holding. I change out what's in there pretty frequently, by the way, depending on the trip and depending on what's shiny to me at that moment. Number five on my list is a game that got played at breakfast every single day when we were on a trip to Colorado for a relative's wedding. We pulled out and played Alexander Pfister's push-your-luck game, Port Royale, published by Pegasus Spiel. It's a great little push-your-luck game. Obviously depends on whether you like push-your-luck games on your opinion of this one, but we like them. We do. This one is where you flip cards and you can elect to raid a ship as it goes by. But the problem is if you get two of the same color ships, you break and you lose your turn and it goes to somebody else. If you quit, you take that money. You then use that money to hire workers to come join your team of people. And those allow you to build buildings and get victory points, which ends the game ultimately. Super fun game. My kids enjoy playing it a lot. And it's got a playtime in, you know, the 10 minute range, which is perfect while you're waiting for your breakfast. There you go. And the gaming moguls are very big fans of Alexander Fister's games. I'm actually surprised you did this one instead of Oh My Goods. You know, the only reason I did. So I'm actually a bigger fan of Oh My Goods. And the reason I didn't pick that is I don't know that that's as great of a travel game. It has a bigger table footprint. It does. It it spreads out big. And honestly, my kids don't really care for Oh My Goods that much i don't know why they never really caught on to that one whereas they love playing port royale so just from a popularity of travel games that one's been a bigger hit in our family makes sense speaking of games that have way too big of a (laughs) table space for the size of the box or actual content oh i'm gonna let you go first because i got an opinion or three on this one my number five is castles of burgundy the card game it's designed by stefan feld as the original castle burgundy was and it was published by Aaliyah. So this game looks like a little shrunk down version of Castles of Burgundy box, but what's in it is only a bunch of those really small Fantasy Flight mini sized card size, and they replicate every aspect of the game. And this game sprawls. So it's maybe a couple hundred little of those baby cards in that little box. But actually, the game, when you actually play it, like full size tables, full size four person card tables are dwarfed by this game because you have to spread everything out. And everything goes and it becomes such a big old message junk. I do really like the gameplay, though. It does a really good job of emulating, I think, the board game without having the spatial aspect of it and placing adjacent to each other. But it's kind of confusing to explain. And it's one of those things that's easier to explain when someone's actually played real Castles of Burgundy. What are your thoughts on it, Mark? I know you have some. Yeah, I think this is maybe the worst travel game ever. Like. I would rather travel with the actual Castles of Burgundy game, given the size, because this is so unwieldy to set up. It takes such a large space. It takes up more space than the actual game. Combine that with the fact that they're the microscopic cards, which are nearly unreadable. Right. And they're all multi-use, but they're not ever chosen to be multi-use. Well, they are in one aspect, but they're dice rolls, they're locations, they're it's everything a peripheral you would have to have for this game if you were anywhere north of 40 is reading glasses because these cards are tiny and there's a lot of information on them in some cases 
That's not super usable. And the game is a mess to teach. I don't know why it's so difficult to teach and the setup takes forever. So for a travel game, I think it fails on a bunch of key. It's portable. I'll give you that. See, so that's what I like out of a portable game, because if I'm ever going somewhere, I'm going to bring a couple of games. I'll have another game that'll take up a small little airplane style fold down table tray. I don't need all my games to fit that. And that's actually one of the things I like about this game is it is annoying to teach. Yes, but it sprawls and actually replicates a big box game experience, at least in table presence, compared to, let's say, another game like Port Royale. That's just a little pile of cards that you put out. Yeah, I think given the same box size, if I'm going to take two hours to play something and set up a whole table worth of stuff. It doesn't take two hours. It takes like an hour it takes, 40. It, it takes, takes like an hour it takes 30, 30 minutes max. to set the thing up. It takes another 30 minutes to teach it. And then it takes an hour to play. So you're two hours in. Meh. Yeah. Meh. F. I'll, 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 I'll doubt that, Mark. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I'll, I'll, have to, I'll have to break it out I'm again. I'm really and say, over this game. Well, I think you probably had a tough time teaching your family with it. Because oh, I've never weird. even tried. Like, it's a little I've had What's, a tough time teaching game oh, playing really? friends this game. What's interesting is I have a couple of people that have played this game that have never played Castles of Burgundy. And this is their only experience with it. And they still like the card game. It's amazing to me. I have no idea how that worked. Because I came in learning this card game based on playing Castles of Burgundy a whole bunch. And it made sense to me. It wasn't as janky. But my Uncle Kirk only knows how to play this. He's never actually played Real Castles of Burgundy. It's amazing. It's a game that I do own. It's a game that I don't see ever playing again. So I should probably get that move down the road to somebody else that will enjoy it. But I don't fault you for I I can see why you like it. And I don't fault you for liking this. But if I never played this again, it'd be okay. (laughs) All right. Number four. What's your number four, Mark? Number four is a game that I speaking of janky. This game is almost the dictionary definition of jank. But it's so much fun and it's got a really big following. And it's a game that I have talked to some people that I'm still looking back thinking they should have hated this game. Yet they not only do they love it, they've bought copies and play it all the time. This is by the mad scientist of multi-use card games, Mr. Carl Chuddick. And that game is Innovation. Innovation is a game about playing through 10 eras and continually improving upon the different innovations in your society. Every card in this entire game is unique. And you build up a tableau of colors, and depending on how many symbols you have in that tableau gives you a certain amount of power in an area. And based on that power, you can either participate in other people's actions that they do, or you can force them to do actions that they may not want to do, like discard victory points or give you cards out of their tableau or so forth. It's a game about racing to the dumbest, most broken combos that you can possibly come up with. It's ridiculously swingy, but it's almost always been a hit when I pulled it out. Innovation published domestically here by Asmati. $15 for the base game on that one and hours of fun. This has been a big hit with us. I want to play it again. I've only played it once and I've been adjacent to it a couple of times, but I remember thinking it was neat, but it is one of those games where your position where you're at right now is going to change when two other people take their turn and it's going to be nearly unrecognizable from where you were at the beginning part of the game. This game is mind-blowingly swingy. I've had games where I'm one card away from winning and the other people are sitting around the table saying, well, this is really dumb. I don't, why am I playing this thing? Smash cut to five minutes later. I'm on the bottom of the stack and they're all going, ha ha. Now I invented the atomic bomb and you shall fear my wrath. Yes, it can swing literally that much. And if you don't like a game that's really swingy and kind of random, you're maybe not going to like this one. But what's fun about it is you can do these kind of crazy, big, splashy things. It has a lot the same appeal that Glory to Rome has. Of course, it's by the same designer. Makes sense. Yeah, I I, want to play it again. Bring that out. Yep. Innovation by Carl Chuddick. 
All right. So my number four is another one kind of similar to Castles of Burgundy. So I'll be interested to see if you dislike this one as well. I have an opinion on this one as well. Camel Up Cards by Stefan Bogan and Z-Man Games. So Camel Up Cards is a card game version of Camel Up, which is like two to eight player betting racing game kind of thing. And what's really cool is the card game adds a different mechanism to investing in different uh, or you determine what's actually going to happen with the camels a little bit more with the thing. So there's five different camels in the race and you're putting different bids on each one and they're going to move a certain amount each go around and whoever has the most money wins. But the Camel Up Cards game is loved by both my family and my fiance's family. And it was a huge hit with them. And it was a little janky to explain the usually what you do is you there's a collection of dice and one of them's going to come out each turn and the color of it determines which camel's actually going to move. In this one, there's a bunch of cards and you're dealt a hand and then you look at the cards and you put some of them in and you put some of them out and then you have to show some of them that you add in depending on the player count. They really like it and I really like it too. I call this a variant of an action programming game in much the same way that it has something in common with Colt Express for that reason. Yeah. And to be honest, if I had to only own one, I think I'm going to only own the card game version. Sure. I own this one as well and have brought it numerous times to different family events and cabin trips. Strangely, I've never had it in my case of holding it. I don't know why, but no, we love this game. It's only cards. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, it's a good one. It's it's really fun. And it's kind of similar to Castles of Burgundy, the card game where it spreads out on the board. And that's a little bit complicated setup. But that's kind of what I like about a travel game, because usually whenever I'm at somewhere, they'll have a big table when we're trying to play. So I like the idea of having it be really small when you actually pack it away and then huge when you set it up. Yeah, and that's probably why I haven't packed it in there is it does eat up a bit of table space when you play it. But we have a fun mm-hmm. time every time we play it. It generally ends up with people standing and yelling and cheering as their camel does strange things like jumping back when you don't expect it to or jumping way forward mm-hmm. or riding another camel to the finish line. Mm-hmm. Would happily, happily recommend. Yep. Camel Up, camel cards. up cards by Stefan Bogan, published by Z-Man Games here in the U.S. Number three is one that's relatively new. It hasn't actually made its way to my case of holding yet, but it will. It's going to be in uh, the 2019 edition of my case of holding. This is a new acquisition of mine published by Homo Sapiens Lab by Satoru Nakamura. That is Dice Fishing Roll and Catch. This is something that I know is popular with you, Jake. I love this game so much. I actually ended up gifting it to my fiance's family, and I kind of regret not buying myself a copy. I think I will. Yeah. We'll see. So dice fishing is a game where a fish comes up and you have a series of dice. There's a name that tune mechanic to it almost where it'll say you have to have a certain combination of dice where you have to reach a certain total. Then you wager an amount of dice that you think you can reach that combination of things with. And there's a couple of special dice or AKA special rods that you can use to give power ups, like adjusting the totals of the dice or re-rolling. And once everybody's bet, the one that's given the most modest bet gets their first chance at trying to catch that fish. And it goes around the table. If nobody catches it, it goes on and becomes a combo with the next pile on that one. Playtime for a round is 10 minutes, maybe 15 minutes. Right. And you can stop whenever you want, too. Yep. You can just play a couple of rounds, whatever you want. Once again, I think this should be at Cabela's and be themed with Minnesota fishing, and it would be a massive hit in everybody's cabin. Dice fishing. It's been a hit here. Same place. Um, We are talking about another Japanese game by Hisashi Hayashi and published by Japan Brand. This is Trick of the Rails. We've talked about Trick of the Rails a bunch. We really like it. It's kind of 18xx, the trick-taking game. That's a great way of describing it. So in this game, you oscillate between either hands where you're going to make 
get different shares of the companies or there's going to be turns where you uh, hands where you actually put the cards out to the different track lines. And then you can also play the trains at certain things. It's a great game. It's probably one of my favorite trick taking games behind Teach You. And it's just a super fun time. I love it. It packs away in a really small box. I like the art of it. We've talked about it before at length, but I don't know what else you can say about it. It's awesome. Yeah, we're fans of trick-taking games to start with, and I have a special soft spot for unique trick-taking games, something that's out of the ordinary rather than just a basic laddering game or something that has special powers. The fact that you are actually influencing a stock market and track building by winning tricks is genius for me, and it's something that evokes the look and style and theme of an 18xx game and even some of the flavor yet being a trick-taking game that packs down into a small deck of cards that you take along on the road. This has also weirdly been something that my family loves playing. Like, I didn't know how well they'd take to this one. Yeah. And we ended up playing it a couple dozen times when we were in Japan last spring. Wow, that's great. Did you get recognized by anybody recognizing the game? Because it's Japanese? (laughs) No, there was nobody else in our uh, Airbnb room along with us as we were playing this one. Dang it. It is funny. Maybe, yeah, maybe the fact that we were playing it in its homeland had a little bit to do with it. But we love playing this one, and it's something that lives permanently in my case of holding. Yeah, I love it, too. It was one of my most played games last year. It's It was one of the most ideal fillers last year. Yeah. We got to play it again. I was just going to say that. All those roll rights. Kick these ones out. That's stupid roll rights. No, I'm not going to say anything bad about roll rights because we do like them. But I would say that a lot of these card-based fillers did get the boot in favor of some roll rights in 2018. What's your number two, Mark? Oh, apparently this chunk was dominated by trick-taking games. Also, speaking of trick-taking games... This is maybe the game that when we pull out the the case of holding, this is the one that gets requested more than anything else. And it's a trick-taking game with a Chinese theme called Tichu by Urs Hotstetler and Rio Grande Games. Tichu is a more standard ladder-style trick-taking game where somebody will lead a set and you have to follow with that same set, whether it's singles or doubles or a run or something like that, and improve upon it. There are also four magic cards in there, special cards that give you a special power, whether it's passing the lead to your partner or whether it's kind of the ultimate trump card. Finally, speaking of ultimate trumps, you can create what's called a bomb, whereas if you have four of a kind or a straight flush, it's a bomb and you win whatever it is. First person out wins fives and ten scores and you play to a certain total of things. And this is a game that has a very devoted following around it, including a lot of sharks that exist in this world. I've seen someone who actually got a, one of the cards, the dragon, tattooed on them. That's how much no Tichu has a following. Oh, yeah. yeah. Seriously. This is one that I think Jake and I would play anytime, place, And it's fair to say that, Jake, if we do play with other people, we should probably make a point of being on different teams. Completely agree. Yeah, it's it's a two-player teams game. There's other ways to play, but that's the best way to play, Yeah, I believe. But the game is just a regular deck of cards and four special cards. So if you wanted to, you could buy a regular set of bicycles from any store and mark some Sharpie on it and make the game. But I'm such a big fan of it. I really need to double down and try to convince my card-playing family to play this again. I tried to teach that to him before we had started playing games together, maybe three or four years ago. And I tried to teach it out of the the rule book. And it's so hard to teach a card game out of the rule book. Yeah. You really have to like teach it as you go. And someone has to know. And it was kind of a bad experience. And I just need to play it again now that we really know how to play. So teach you. I love it. 
Yeah, we just had a funny experience playing this one on our fall break trip to Boston, where uh, I was partnered with my son against my daughter and my wife. My son and I were up by a solid couple hundred points. All we had to do was have a reasonably okay hand, and we had the win locked up by a country mile. My wife and daughter ended up calling Grand Teach You, which allows you to double your score. Essentially, you can you can there are side bets you can make before any hands are played, whether you go out first or not. If you do it after all the cards are dealt, it's called a teach you. If you do it when half the cards are dealt, it's called a grand teach you. They called grand teach you because that was the only way they were going to have a chance at winning. And I got dealt an awesome hand and I thought, well, suckers, this is going to be easy. Wouldn't you know it? My wife ended up going out first, getting the grand teach you and taking the win. I just all I could do is bang my head on the table. That's hilarious. That's so funny. It was one of those that she just was one step ahead of me the entire hand and I couldn't swing it back to me. God. Teach you is just so great. There's so many experiences like that. Yeah. Where you're just right on that ragged edge and just every play matters. And the communication between the teammates is kind of interesting because you don't know necessarily what hand they really have. And there, but there oh, is a lot so cool. of signaling in this game in the ways that Bridge does, where you pass some cards at the beginning and you communicate a lot by what you pass and what you play. There's a lot, there's a lot of messaging that happens in this game. Right. Absolutely. By the way, too, my wife's mother was a lifetime grandmaster in contract bridge. So the apple did not fall far from that tree. My wife is a shark at this game. So I would like to get together a game with you and me and my wife. And we need to find a fourth teach you shark and just really, really Tyler's, play at Tyler's a pretty good. He likes teach you a lot. Tyler is pretty good. He just usually gets paired with some not sharks at the game. Right. And that's the challenge. We often teach it. So I want to play this game with a bunch of other high level players and really go at it. Absolutely. Teach you. It's so, great. Buy it. It's like $12 on Amazon, too. You get two decks of it every time you buy it, too. Can you tell we like so, this game? Yeah, we love it. Number cool. two. What's your number two, Jake? Startups or insert oink of choice. This is my oink of choice by Jun Sasaki. Um, it's an oink game. If you don't know what an oink game is, listen to our oink episode, our oink episode, where we talk about our shoinks, our shelf of oinks. Startups is a game where you are investing in different startup companies by it's a it's a card playing game where you draw a card and you play a card. That's the whole game, but it offers really interesting uh, opening meta kind of with the game. And it's one of those games you can play round after round after round. And this will often be a game I'll pop in my pocket, bring to a brewery. And the first time we play, they'll be like, oh, oh, I get it now. And then we'll play it a couple more times after that, just while we chat, drink some beers. And it's just a really fun experience. Would you put startups as your best traveling oink or what would your oink be, Mark? I have only had one. one, only one, only one, because that's my only one. OK, I usually put two in my case of holding. OK, if I had to pick one, I would pick Deep Sea Adventure for only one reason. The one reason is, is I try to make them not all card games, right? That's a dice game with push your luck and so forth. So it's different than all the other games in there. And so that's often why that one makes it in there. I have had startups as my oink of choice in there. I also tend to bring nine tiles in that spot. And twins is the other one that I tend to bring. In. Got it. Yeah, but do some oinks. Pick your oinks. They're small. You can bring them places. They're perfect travel games. You can put them in a pocket, too. I'm going to predict that in my 2019 iteration of this case of holding, I think I'm going to have troll in there. Really interesting. Well, yeah, yeah, it is an interesting idea because whenever you make your case of holding, you want to have some variety and you already have card games in there, whether or not startups on its own merits out competes other card games is kind of moot it's just you could do something else and troll and dc yeah. adventure for that matter oh. are, are are not card games 
you know, as we were discussing how to formulate this episode, it was originally just going to be a small box episode. But really what it is, is I take a lot of pride personally in curating what's in my case of holding so that it's a variable experience and I have a nice variety for a variety of playing levels and playing experiences and dice games and card games and things that are board games implemented with cards. And I take an interest in curating what's inside that little nine by 13 box or nine by 10 box or whatever that is. That makes sense. So now we're on to our number, number one. Ones. And honestly, neither one of these are card games, strangely enough. You could technically call mine a card game. And you I could think. technically. I think there's a case. Yeah, you could make a case that mine's a card game also. But they don't play off as card games. I, no, I think they that's do not. The difference. That's correct. In neither case do you have a hand of cards. Yes. So my number one travel game, and this is something that actually fits into the smallest box print, I guess, of all of them. It's a tiny little box with tiny little white mints. I have taken this by itself more times than any other game because it's really self-contained. It's Mintworks by Justin Blasky and 524 Labs. Mintworks is a worker placement game in a Altoid size tin. And the workers are little Altoids looking mints that are wood. I wouldn't recommend tasting them. They're not very good. But (laughs) I do get weirded out. I have the psychological thing that when I crack that box open, I expect to be hit in the face with that Altoids mint powder intense smell. Mm -hmm. And even though it's not in there, I swear it is. And there's been times when I've been tempted to soak my little mints in peppermint oil just so I have the full experience. Right. The full experience. Or just one of them. Or co-op an Altoids tin. Yeah, to have that flavor. And put your things in there. Yep. So this is a pretty short game as worker placement things go. There's a somewhat random setup to it. And the idea is that you're building a city and generating a mint economy and using those mints to build other buildings. Game is done when you have a certain number of victory points and there is an engine building aspect to it. Now, the difference with this one and a lot of other engine building worker placement games is this is a drag race, not an endurance race. So the game is done the exact turn you get your engine to go off. Yep. It's trying to get your engine to go off quicker than anybody else. Yeah. I, I like this game too. It it regrettably sits in a part of my shelf that's not really visible, so I don't bring it as much. But we need to play it again. It's a fun little game. They also did a secondary Kickstarter for Mint Delivery, which wasn't the best. And I think it maybe soured my taste on the whole Mint game series a little bit. But Mintworks is so fun. We got to play it again. It's awesome. We actually had fun playing Mint Delivery. We played it on the floor at the Chicago airport or the Boston airport or something as we were waiting to have Boston airport as we were waiting to board our plane. And uh, we enjoyed it. I don't think it's as good a game as Mintworks, but I also obviously putting it at number one, think very highly of Mintworks. There it is. Yeah, I like Mintworks a lot. Your number one, Jake. I think this would have been your number one, too, had I not had it been my number one. Um, this is this is metro x we talked about earlier in the episode you're building different subway routes and the mechanism that you do this is it's a roll and write but in this case it's actually a flip and write so you flip over a card you do something we've talked about it at length it's by hisashi hayashi and okazu brands it's not the easiest game to get your hands on but google it i think you can get it at meeple source and a couple other different websites but we love this game god we love metro x i have laminated my scorecards on there jake you need to get on that buddy I know. I know. Did you do with um, matte ones or did you do with gloss? I just did gloss. It's fine. It's not like you have a whole table full of the stuff. So the glossy ones are just fine. I've seen that you have laminated things recently. So when we get off here, Jake, I'll make you a deal. I will go laminate up some uh, dope. So clever score sheets. You go laminate your Metro X score sheets. Sounds fair. All right. And and one last note. I think we'd be remiss to say, do you pack a deck of regular cards in your case of holding? 
I don't. And you would really? not be wrong. You would not be wrong for doing that. I don't. There aren't any regular card games that I get that excited about playing. I don't know. Weird. There's pretty much always there's a deck of cards in my backpack anywhere I go. Even for work, it's in my briefcase. (laughs) Yeah, we play hearts as a family sometimes. But would I rather play teach you? Yeah, I'd rather play teach you. I'd rather play trick of the rails than play hearts. And interesting. The other card game that is super big in our family is we play a lot of cribbage. And I don't know. That's kind of the game we play with grandpa when he comes over. So... (laughs) See, so we play a lot of cribbage, too. So I don't bring a scoreboard. I just use my phone. There's a couple of cribbage scorekeeping apps. Sure. Well, that's fair. Well, and also you do have a deck of regular cards. You have to teach you as long as you teach you in your travel thing. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. They're just not hearts. They're swords and stars and random Asian themed things. You bring up an interesting point, and I'm going to reference something that isn't currently a product. But when it does become a product, I'm absolutely going to look into for my case of holding. There's been a discussion over the past week in tabletop game design on Reddit and also the board game sub blog about a guy who has been trying to make a deck of cards that is going to be able to be used for a huge variety of games. Anything from tarot to regular cards to even Japanese Hanafuda decks, which are called flower cards in Japan. And I brought a deck of those home with me. You can use it for Tichu. You can use it for oh, just uh, Werewolf. There's even like roles placed on there. Right. It's really cool looking. Uh, the original design was called Flexi Cats, and now he has actually made it a more universal system called the Ever Deck. And this looks really promising. I think it's a great idea. Got it. Yeah, no, it, it's great. It's such a smart idea to have multiple things in one deck. I'd agree with you. I'd, I'd love to buy that. The one thing is I wonder how legally it'll work. I wonder if any publishers will be mad because it says can play teach you or something. I don't know how the whole legality of that will work, but I'm definitely buying a copy if it either goes on ArtsCow or if it goes on actual regular Kickstarter. I mean, maybe there's an issue with saying the word teach you, but as long as you're not taking the art or the graphic design from it, you should be good to go. Right. Yeah, we'll have to play that. But I always travel with a deck of cards. We play so many card games in my family. So, right. That'll be perfect. Very cool. And that's something to keep an eye out for the future. So with that, I think we've exhausted this topic. I think we both have some arts and crafts project we maybe need to dive into right. on this. And cold we probably evening. have to turn on the heaters as well because we're, oh. we're about to freeze. <laughs> hey, let's check this. So I legit did turn off my heat tonight and the temperature has dropped six degrees in my house since I started recording. So, Oh, my God. Yeah, we have reasonably decent uh, insulation and so forth, but I could probably stand to get some new windows. So it is getting a little chilly in here. All right, we'll go turn on that heater, bundle up, and we'll play some games later. Sounds great, everybody. Well, hey, thanks for tuning in once again. So, for Mark and Jake, thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll catch you next time. Thanks, everybody. Good night. Good night, everybody. This has been the Gaming Moguls Podcast, co-hosted by Mark Teske and Jake Klopfenstein. Please find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or TuneIn. Feel free to join our Board Game Geek Guild, guild number 3431. Find us on Instagram and Twitter, at Gaming Moguls. Or reach us via email, jake at gamingmoguls.com or mark at gamingmoguls.com. If you like the Gaming Moguls podcast, please tell a friend. Thanks for listening.